Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor of Community Life. It's a privilege to be able to teach this morning. As we conclude our book study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, in the series we've, series we've entitled Encouraged. Encouraged in the book, 1 Thessalonians, is about the encouragement we receive from seeing others come to faith in Christ and their obedience according to the Christian life. But most importantly and most clearly, uh, the encouragement we receive is the truth and the reality that Christ is coming again and he will restore all things when he does. And those who have faith and trust in Jesus will receive renewed bodies, renewed minds, renewed hearts. Those who have died, who had Christ, will raise to new life. We'll be able to spend time with those who have fallen asleep, who have died. And that's the encouragement that we receive as we move through the trials of life and the persecution, the difficulty, the heartbreak, the frustrations that we have. That what powers us through is the truth that Christ is coming again. So that's, uh, I'm excited to conclude this uh, series. Now, if you remember uh, last week, there's a bed up here. And Pastor Chad laid on the bed. I don't know if you realize that. Talking about being spiritually awake. I'm not going to lay on the bed. Not my style. Um, <clears throat> but this, in this passage, is this kind of the second part. The practical application of a Christian life that is lived wide awake. So today we're going to look on, on how living wide awake impacts our relationship to the church, to each other, and to God. So as we get into 1 Thessalonians, let me pray. Oh God, thank you for the encouragement we have and the promise that your son is coming again to restore all things, to make all things new, to raise to new life those who have come before us, and to usher in your kingdom. So Lord, as we look about um, what a life that holds on to that truth, one that's wide awake. Lord, help us to think not only about um, what the word says, but may we think about how we need to apply it to our lives and the people that we live with. So help us, Lord, as we look at your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. But before we do this, I have a question for you. When was your best night's sleep? When was your best night's sleep? Was it after pulling an an all-nighter when you were in school? My wife was a big fan of these as a biology major. Was it the first time your baby slept through the night? Uh, Maybe after you ran your first marathon and went into a coma for about a day. Uh, Maybe it was uh, after uh, you were doing mandatory doubles and you finally got a day off. Or maybe you had the grandkids for a week and they finally went home. When was your best night's sleep? Well, I'll tell you about mine. Um, uh, The summer after college, me and a group of friends went uh, backpacking in the uh, kind of the foothills of the Himalayas in northwest China, handing out a Bible and shortwave radios that had the gospel message uh, given. This is uh, areas of China that never... Uh, some of them never seen a, a, a Western face, and, and most of them, if not all of them, had never seen a Bible, heard the gospel of Jesus. So we were uh, backpacking. It was about a 10-day trip, and we would sleep out in these open fields or in the dike next to the rice paddy, and occasionally uh, some of these uh, villagers would invite us into their uh, dirt and mud 
huts and we would sleep. Not great sleeping environments. We were exhausted. Well, at the conclusion of this time, we went to one of the large Chinese cities and rented a hotel room. We finally took, you know, we were able to take a shower and we were exhausted. And by the end of that trip, we were getting a little frustrated with one another, a little snippy, a little discouraged. So we, you know, I took a shower and I remember I, I laid down on the bed. I did not even get into the covers and I was out for like 12 hours. And I woke up the next morning and like I was a different person. My body needed the rest. And as I rest, I woke up wide awake. And every one of my team members were wide awake. And it was amazing how our disposition toward one another and toward the country of China changed. Well, last week, Chad talked about, hey, we as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, are to live wide awake. But once you are wide awake, it changes things in your life. And the Apostle Paul here is giving us instructions for people who are now spiritually wide awake. And as we move into these instructions, we see that being spiritually awake changes our relationship to church authority, church leadership, to one another, and to God. Jump with me first in verse 11, starting there. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in, the, in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So the first thing we see is living spiritually awake changes our relationship to church leadership. Now I will say these verses are awkward for me to teach about respecting and esteeming very highly those who are pastors and elders. Now, I'm the youngest pastor on staff, and I also look like my mom dropped me off here in the minivan. <clears throat> um, I do have two kids. I am 33. Uh, but just yesterday, I was at a bir- children's birthday party and introduced to a, a woman. Um, and, oh, this is one of the pastors at our church. And she goes, oh, um, how old do you have to be to be a pastor? I'm like, well... So are you, she thought I was 18. I'm like, well, no, I'm not 18. So I, I recognize that these verses seem a little self-serving, a little insecure, maybe even narcissistic, especially in our American culture. Now, there are other cultures that com- uh, commanding, imploring, uh, using imperatives to talk about a respecting and esteeming church leadership is common, not in our culture. See, our culture uh, values freedom because, and especially our uh, tradition, our tradition as as evangelicals is one of, uh, we value freedom because our country and our our tradition is very influenced by the Protestant Reformation. You see, 500 years ago, this Halloween, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of a church in Wittenberg. And the main uh, thrust of these theses was that, hey, no one needs a priest or a pope in order to come to God in prayer and in repentance. You, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. And we champion that. That's right. No one, you do not need a pastor or a priest or an elder to come to God in prayer, in confession, and in a relationship. But I think we can go too far. 
You see, Scripture says that though everyone is equal before God, there is a hierarchy within the body of Christ, within the church. We look as we see in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Pastors and elders labor among you and they are over you in the Lord. Just as a sergeant fights side by side with a private, he is nonetheless responsible for and has authority over that private. Just as a surgeon works side by side her team in a surgery, she still has authority over and responsibility for the operation. Pastors and elders have authority and responsibility within the church. They have the authority to discipline and to remove church members from fellowship, 1 Corinthians 5. They have the authority to make decisions about the life and direction of the church and to decide in spiritual matters on issues outside the express teaching of Scripture. Now, the things that are clearly taught in Scripture stand above, above and above, over anyone in this church, on the elder board and the pastors. But those things that are not expressly taught The peripheral things, the pastors and elders have spiritual authority to decide in those matters. We also have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to protect the church morally and theologically, as well as pray for you. That's why we're so excited when you fill out those prayer cards and you email us about prayer requests so that we know what's going on in your life, even though some of us may not know you personally We love you personally, and we want to know how we can pray. Let me be clear, though. Every vocation, every job is of equal value in the kingdom of God, whether you're the custodian at the hospital or the CEO, anywhere in between, your work is is equally as valuable in the kingdom of God. But... There nonetheless is a hierarchy and a structure within the church. A pastor and an elder requires unique spiritual work and is open to unique spiritual attack and weariness. That's why James 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. All of those who come up here and teach, who lead worship, who are pastors and elders, will be judged with greater strictness in our life and in our work than someone who is an accountant, manufactures, or is a doctor or nurse. That's the difference. Okay, so what does this look like in a local church? What does this look like in a body of believers who are living spiritually awake? Well, it looks like two things. It looks like respect and esteem. A respect is acknowledging the seriousness of the position of pastor and elder. It acknowledges the position of pastor and elder that's given by God. It has a significant eternal impact and has a unique spiritual burden. You see the CVC pastors and elders on the screen. Secondly, 
a congregation esteems pastors and elders by acknowledging not just the, the seriousness, but the value of the position and the work. That a faithful, hardworking, spiritually strong pastor is of vital importance to the local church and to the spiritual climate of the region. So what does this look like in our church? Well, I canvassed uh, some of the pastors and elders of our church, and here are some of the, this is some of the things that respecting and esteeming pastors and elders would look like in our church. A couple thoughts. Um, scripture says that pastors and elders are to admonish or to warn or instruct or call out those in the congregation. So when a pastor and elder warns you or has a tough conversation with you, don't become upset. Rather, be thankful that a pastor and elder cares enough about your life and your spiritual life so to the degree that we would have very difficult and uncomfortable conversations. None of, zero of the pastors and elders enjoy having those challenging conversations. So when we do, be thankful that we care that much about you. Another thing, pray for your pastor. <laughs> Pray for us that we don't get weary and discouraged. We don't shirk our responsibilities. We keep our head down and our shoulder to the plow. Even more so than pray for me, pray for our families. Pray for our spouses who are often at home by themselves in the evening when we have responsibilities. So pray for them and, and the fam our families. Another way, cut your pastor some slack. Listen, secret, we know that not all of our sermons are good. Okay, <laughs> we, Nate in the team knows not all of their worship sets are great. Sometimes weird things pop up on the screen, and, you know, tech people and stuff. Cut us some slack, okay? We're doing our best. We want to improve. But whenever those things happen, say, well, they're human too. Another way, don't leave the service until you are dismissed. It's disrespectful to leave until Nate and the team have concluded uh, the time of leading in worship. We understand you have to get someone, you have to get your kids or whatever. But as a pattern, do not leave the service before we're dismissed because it's disrespectful. Another thing, when Nate is singing and leading us, it's not a concert. Sing along. Nate's like, man, sometimes I just feel like I'm up here. See, when you sing, when he hears you sing, it is such an encouragement to the worship team and to those who lead um, in all other areas of the ministry. Another way, don't starve your pastor. You should desire and be happy when vocational pastors earn a salary that allows them to live in the community that they serve. Also, work hard to pay attention during the sermon. I know it can be hard. I know not all of our sermons are good, but all, most of our sermons, all of them maybe, are based on scripture, okay? We really try to do a good job. So do your best to engage with the sermon. Well, these are just some of the ways, and maybe as you think of pastors and elders, again, this is awkward to me, but this is what the Bible says. How, you may think, how can I respect and esteem the pastors and elders that serve in this church? All right, so living spiritually awake changes your relationship to church leadership, and it changes our relationship to fellow believers. Look with me in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient 
with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You see, Jesus calls us the family of God. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, but you know that every family has its dysfunction. Our family has its dysfunction. And we see three groups and categories of people of dysfunction within our church. And scripture gives us a clear way to relate to each one of these three categories. Well, the first category is someone who is lazy. See, a person who is spiritually awake is a hard worker, but we know there are people who are lazy. And the Apostle Paul tells us to admonish or to call out or to warn those who are lazy. Now, admonishing the idol or admonishing the lady, the lazy, that is to, not lady, do not admonish ladies, this the lazy. <clears throat> admonishing the lazy or the idol is distinctively Christian because in our culture, we want to do, we want to do one of two things. We want to either enable the lazy or we want to condemn the lazy or the idol. Somewhat to enable the lazy and remove any consequences from a person's life who lives a life of laziness, as if it's a right to have their needs and wants met by those around them. On the other side, there are people who want to condemn the lazy, create such punitive measures as to cast them away and to punish them for our past sin of laziness. The difference for a Christian is that we admonish, we warn, we call out, we come alongside in their sin to turn them from the way they're going into a path of greater life. Spiritually awake Christians, we admonish lazy people that there are consequences for their choices. So here's a question for you. Do you know someone who is idle or lazy that needs a kick in the pants? Who comes to your mind that maybe you go, hey, that's not my job. But in reality, these commands from Scripture are not for the pastors and elders. They're for everyone in the church. So if you know someone that is living a life that is lazy, you need to warn them, call them out, in that the Bible calls sin. Second category we see is spiritually awake Christians encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted is another way of saying those who are discouraged, fearful, anxious, or timid. And people can be discouraged or faint-hearted for a number of ways. Maybe they're trapped in a pattern of sin. Maybe they're facing a serious trial in their life. Maybe they're experiencing persecution for living the Christian life. Or maybe they're struggling with a mental disorder like depression or schizophrenia. As Christians, we are to encourage those people. Again, our culture wants to do one of two things. We want to either deceive the discouraged or we want to dismiss the discouraged. I think most often we want to deceive the discouraged. And we do that by this. When they tell us their story, we we say, hey, it'll be all right in the end. Don't worry about it. Hey, in 10 years you won't remember this. But the reality is sometimes it won't be all right. Sometimes there's a diagnosis that it's certain, and sometimes there's a revelation that's 
that destroys you. You see, those who know Christ, in the end, it will be better than okay. But for many that don't know Christ, it's not just going to be okay. And by just tossing out platitudes to them, it's just a sweet way of lying to them. Spiritually awake Christians don't do that. Neither do we dismiss them. Neither do we just say, hey, get over it. Come on, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. You can't handle life, get with it. It reminds me of that old Bob Newhart skit where he's a counselor and a woman comes in and shares with, with him how she's uh, struggling with crippling claustrophobia. And he goes, okay, I have a foolproof plan for you to get out of your claustrophobia. And I write this down. She goes, okay. He goes, stop it. Stop it. Like, okay, you can pay my secretary in the out front. Yeah, like we don't, that is not the Christian way of dealing with people who are discouraged for any way in their life. We encourage them. And we have the golden ticket, right? We have the silver bullet. As Christians, we have the certainty that Christ is coming again. That if you're a follower of Jesus, the deepest valley that you go through will be as deep as it ever gets because your future is certain. The peace of God is coming 100% certain. And one day, these relationships, this brokenness, this fear, anxiety will, will lift like fog when the light of Christ comes into your life. That is the encouragement that we give to those who know Christ. And those that don't know Christ, we offer that to them. And we point out in their lives, no matter what they're trusting in, it's shifting sand. And this, is, this has become more and more evident in my life as I've spent more and more time with those who are, down, who are later uh, in life. You know, for a young person, sometimes you have this false myth that retirement, you just kind of hang out. You just get an RV and everything's just smooth sailing. That is a lie that is often people in retirement and later in life, it's some of the hardest times because they're caring for people above them, caring for people below them. Their body is wasting away. Look, if your hope's in retirement, you will be sorely discouraged. But if your hope is for after retirement, <laughs> when Christ comes again or you die and go to meet him, that is the source of encouragement. All right, third well, question before we move on to the next category. Who in your life is discouraged that you need to encourage? When I ask the question, who in your life is discouraged? What name comes up? That means you are to encourage them in some way. Third category, spiritually awake Christians help the weak. Help the weak. The weak includes those who cannot do for themselves. It includes physical mental, and spiritual weakness. Now, the difference between the idle, which we admonish, and the weak, which we help, is ability. Can the idle do for themselves? Yes. Can the weak? No. And those are the people that we help in every way we can. You see, the world wants to relate to the weak in one of two ways. They want to either step over the weak or step on the weak. They use the weak to step on, to get higher in their career, higher in their life, go up the ladder financially, up the ladder relationally. Or many of us, I think more common in the church, we step over the weak. 
We say, oh, those people, they live in another part of the city. They're different from me. They have ministries that I don't serve at that take care of them. There are organizations that support them that I'm not involved of. Hey, I pay my taxes. That's enough. No, that's stepping over the week. As Christians, we help the week. We come alongside. We come into their lives to do for them that they are not able to do for themselves. And this has been the charge of the church from its foundation. Uh, Rodney Stark, he's a non-Christian sociologist. And he looked at, he had a question. He said, how is it that a group of 100 or 150 followers of Jesus after Christ's uh, resurrection overtook the Roman Empire so that in 351, Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, not based on personal conviction, but because there was more Christians than everybody else. How did that happen? Well, he goes through all these, process, these reasons. One of the things he highlights is beautiful, and it's for us today. See, in the ancient Roman world, there were these large cities with horrible sanitation. So these plagues would ravage uh, these cities. And sometimes 30 or 40% of a city would die in a very short period of time. And pagans, those who do not, who believed in the pantheon of gods, um, did not trust in Jesus, often they would, they're, they're, uh, uh, the way they would deal with sick people is they would quarantine them. They'd put them in a separate place or leave them in a separate room and not care for them. And often they would actually put people, family members and friends, into the street before they were dead so that the body collectors would come and pick them up and take them out of the city. Right? You ever seen Monty Python? You know, I'm not dead yet. Like, that was historical fact. They would do that. But Rodney Stark found through ancient writings, non-Christian writings, that Christians would go and meet these strangers who are dying in the streets, covered in filth. They would pick them up, bring them into their home. They would care for them. They would wash their body, give them food, give them drink. Often, those people would die. Often, the caregivers would then get the plague, and they would die. But sometimes they would recover. Two things happened. The people who were almost dead were brought in by a stranger and recovered. They became followers of Jesus. And these caregivers, often women, would themselves get the plague, but they would recover. And what we know as immunity, the pagan Romans thought as God's protection. And they would see these women kissing the feet of dying people and not dying themselves. And they would say, something about their God. The church has always been about helping the weak. Jesus himself says, look, disciples, they, those who are not followers of me, will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's a question for you. Are you where are you helping the weak? Are you stepping over the weak? Are you stepping on the weak or are you helping the weak? Like, like you personally, where are you helping the weak? Because we all were dead in our sins. We were all condemned to a life apart from Christ. We were 
weak. We were helpless. And Christ came and healed us. That's what Christianity is all about. So living spiritually awake changes our relationship to church leadership, to fellow believers, and to God himself. Look at me, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, being spiritually awake is having an awake prayer life. You see, we all want God to come into uh, and work in our lives. We all want God to be present. We want God to show us his plan for our lives. We want God to come in and remove harmful and broken habits in our lives, in our family's lives, in our friends' lives. But oftentimes we don't want to do the work of prayer that fuels everything else. You see, prayer is the fuel station, the power station, the the intimate interaction that we are offered before God. He calls us to spend time with him. But without a vibrant prayer life, we will never live according to the will of God. We know chapter three, the will of God is this, that we would live sexually pure lives, live a life of sexual integrity. Sexual integrity can't happen until we have a robust prayer life. And once we have a robust prayer life, our life begins to form into the image of Christ. And then when we have pushed out sin by the light of the gospel of Christ, then the spirit begins to take active roles in our life, leading us in the direction that God has for us. But we can't go back the chain. We can't go, hey, God, I want you to lead me in my life. Okay, and then once you do that, then I'll get rid of the sexual sin or the private sins in my life, and then I'll have a vibrant prayer life. It always goes from prayer to holiness to kingdom living. So here's a question for you. What are you doing in your life to structure your schedule such that you have time for prayer? Look, prayer's not just gonna um, send you a push notification on your phone, right? God's not be like, oh, Prayer, thanks God, you know, send me a text. Look, you're gonna have to push out things in your life in order to spend time with God because spiritually awake people are praying people and praying people are holy people and holy people are led by the spirit in every aspect of their life. So do you long for deep personal integrity and the leading of the Holy Spirit? If yes, And how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Well, these verses, verses 12 through 22, is kind of a summary, a Cliff Notes version of the Christian life, of the ethic of the gospel. It is those who are living wide awake do these things. And I think as we're going through, I imagine there are two groups in here. I think some of us, we say, yeah, that's that's me. What you just talked about, I was raised that way. That's obvious. I support it. That's great, Josh, wholeheartedly. Well, if that's what you affirm in your mind, is it part of your heart and is it the way you live? When was the last time you called out a loved one for being lazy? When was the last time you encouraged someone who was 
discouraged? When was the last time you helped the weak? How do you speak about pastors and elders of the church? And how is your prayer life? If you say, yes, Josh, I agree, this is what I want to live my life, then how are you doing? And I'm going to remind you of this. <laughs> we are great, great grandchildren, spiritual grandchildren of a bunch of scared, weak, discouraged, faint-hearted, sometimes lazy men and women who were hanging out in an upper room and then the Spirit came. They changed the world through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we, through Christ, have the Spirit. Christ said in the, in the Gospel of John, he goes, look, I'm leaving, but it's better for you that I leave because you will receive the Spirit the third person of the Godhead to live within you and to fuel you for things that you could not do otherwise. You have in you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you have faith and trust in Jesus, power like you would not believe. And you can do it. I encourage you this. You can do it. Whatever is grabbing hold of your heart, tearing down your family, tearing down your world, you through the power of the Spirit can be renewed. And that should be an encouragement. And I think there's a second group, especially those who you don't, um, you know, you're just checking out the faith. You should say, you know, I don't, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I wouldn't say I'm that. I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about what Christianity is about. And I'm so glad you're here. And I think some of these things about respecting authority and doing all these things may seem um, archaic and it may seem inefficient. Like, well, if I do that, it's going to be kind of, it's going to slow me down. And you are right. The Christian ethic is inefficient. But I want to challenge you with this. Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God. He lived, according to all records, perfectly. And he was a carpenter for 30 years. He was inefficient. He was only in public ministry for three years. And then he left it all to a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors who from the get-go started to fight. But through his inefficiency, changed the world. Much of the goodness you see in the world comes directly from the teaching and the life of Jesus himself. So I'm going to challenge you. If you don't, if you're just checking it out, my question for you is this. What do you get encouragement from? What's your hope? What are you waiting for? And I'm going to submit it will not hold up to your hopes and dreams. But there's only one who will. It is he who rose from the dead and is coming again. And you can put your faith and trust in Jesus. Receive a new life simply by calling out to him and say, Jesus, I trust you. And I want the encouragement that comes from a life of surrender to you. So I hope this book of 1 Thessalonians has been an encouragement to you. And I even more so hope that you take what we've learned and take what we uh, have been taught and encourage others with it, with the truth that Jesus is coming again. And it will be a wonderful day for those who know him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good. You are beautiful. You are loving. We are encouraged that we, one day, you will come again. You will judge the world 
where you will put things to right for those who trust in you. Lord, I pray that those who have yet to put their faith in you, they will look what they hope in square in the eye and will see that it is but a shadow. And you are the only thing that's truly an anchor for our hopes and dreams. So Lord, would you um, encourage us through the singing? Would you encourage us to live a life according to the gospel? And Lord, we, we pray that we see dozens and hundreds of people encouraged by the message of the gospel for the first time next week, even, um, with Sports Camp. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.